Hello and welcome to Good in Theory. If you happen to be listening to this podcast on our website, that's great and I'm glad to have you. But I'd also recommend subscribing on a podcast playing app like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. This will ensure that all the episodes are delivered to your device for free as soon as they're ready. The subscribe buttons are below the player on the website. Thanks. Today, as a bonus episode, I had a conversation with Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein. Rebecca is a philosopher and novelist and has written 10 books, including one called Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. In this conversation, we talk about Plato, Socrates, whether you can do politics and philosophy at the same time, why, in Rebecca's opinion, scientists should probably just lay off the IQ research, and we also talk about a recent event, which is a letter published in Harper's Magazine, signed by 150 writers and academics and intellectuals, making a plea for more open debate and less intolerance. The letter was published. Twitter went nuts. People are mad at it for all sorts of reasons. Rebecca was one of the signatories to this letter. So we talk about the response to this letter and how that might relate to Socrates' predicament in Athens. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rebecca Goldstein. When I found out about Plato at the Googleplex, I really wanted to have you on the show for two reasons. One, because unlike most people who write books about Plato, you've written it in dialogue format. Plato is a character in your book, and that is unique. And the second reason is that you give the impression that you have a strong personal attachment to Plato. You care about Plato, and it comes through in your writing. So I'd love to start just by hearing your own story about why you decided to write a book about Plato. Yeah, so my relationship with Plato goes back a long time. I should say I was brought up in an extremely religious household. I am living a life that I could not have begun to imagine that I'd be living um, and being brought up in a very patriarchal um, culture. Uh, wasn't even clear that I was going to get myself to college. And, um, but I was allowed to take out books uh, from the library. My parents felt that if it was in the library, it was, it was okay. Um, and they, they allowed me quite a, li- a, a lot of freedom. I was a very bookish kid. And um, one Sabbath, uh, I would go to the library every Friday before sundown to get my week's reading, but particularly the reading for the Sabbath because we weren't allowed to do anything else on the Sabbath. Um, I took out this book called The Story of Philosophy. It was by Will Durant. And I was 12. And I had no idea even what philosophy was. And uh, I, the first chapter, I think the first chapter was on Plato. Always is. I went crazy. I, it was my first experience of what a, of, of kind of, of a kind of ecstasy. Um, I, I didn't really know too much couldn't understand very much. I was quite poorly educated. Um, but um, 
the idea that beyond, um, you know, the, I remember he used the word phantasmagoria and I had a little dictionary and I looked up phantasmagoria and they, my little dictionary didn't have and I thought, wow, this is a really smart book. They have books, words in here, <laughs> don't even, it's not even in the dictionary, you know, to be so smart. And, um, and uh, you know, but the beyond the phantasmagoria were these beautiful abstract structures, somewhat like mathematics. I liked mathematics very, very much. I mean, that was my other reading was in mathematics. So, um, you know, all the books in the library on math. It was, and I remember I had to, at a certain point, I had to just sort of look away from the book because just to catch my breath. It was just a beautiful um, image of the power of the mind and that we could discover things through the power of the mind and that I didn't really know what he was talking about here, but I kind of knew what he was talking about. That and, might be the um, sweet spot. I don't know. <laughs> it was the sweet spot. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. And it was, uh, I think I launched my, um, my ambition, my intellectual ambitions and my life ambitions that uh, I was going to join this fraternity slash sorority of people who could gain access to this kind of beautiful world of ideas. And, and yeah. how old were you when, when you had this 12. experience? Well, wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah, yeah, it was just, it was just becoming an atheist and it was like, it all just came in yeah. at the right moment, yes. And so when it comes to this, this recent book, why, why dialogues? Why dialogue? Well, I'll tell you, so I've always been experimenting with forms, uh, literary forms, for making it as amusing and as accessible as possible. No matter what ideas I'm com committed to, if I can understand it, anybody could understand it, basically. And um, so I've written novels, I've written all sorts of things. And then I had actually been asked to write a book on Plato by my editor. Um, and he, it's funny because he'd actually only heard me give lectures on Platonism in mathematics, but he could see I was passionate about Platonism. And he asked me to write a book on, on, on Plato. And then, you know, and so I started doing research. I'm not trained in ancient philosophy. I, I did, you know, when I was in graduate school, I studied, you know, I took seminars with Gregory Vlastos, one of the great, um, you know, uh, Plato scholars of all time, very fortunate to have been able to study with him, but that wasn't my specialty. My specialty was philosophy of math, mm -hmm. philosophy of physics. Um, so, but anyway, I started, you know, I plunged in, completely fell in love with ancient Greek culture. I, I just can't begin to say how, it, how much it grabbed me. And then, you know, I was out walking where I do most of my thinking when I'm out walking and I thought, wait, how am I, but how am I gonna make this really you know, fun and amusing and entertaining. Oh, of course, dialogue. The man himself did it, right? He himself was trying to find a way of dramatizing ideas, you know, and, and so what better, you know, better way of doing it? And fortunately, my editor, you know, went along with it all. Do you think, do you think that the dialogue is, I mean, it is entertaining. It is very engaging. It's just, hearing conversation or reading conversation grabs people more, I think, than just hearing a monologue as yeah. 
a person who's slept through a lot of lectures. Um, <laughs> but do you think it's also makes a difference of what you're doing philosophically? Oh gosh, absolutely. So one of the things you can do, and I, I like to do this when I write novels as well, is, and this is a very Platonic or Socratic um, idea that philosophy is not this nine to five thing that we do, you know, it, has, it permeates one's entire life. And, you know, and so Plato's dialogues aren't just talking heads. Oh, not at all, right? They're, these are real people and, you know, the way they talk, the way they present their ideas, are they tentative or are they bombastic, you know, are they open to hearing from other people or are they, you know, narrow-minded and go off in a huff? Their ideas themselves, their, you know, that they're presenting is permeates their, their entire personality, their character um, and their behavior and whether they're good or bad people, in fact. So, and I, I, you know, it sounds naive, but I believe that. I would not, I would not develop my life to philosophy unless I actually believe that what we believe and how we go about believing it and how hard we, you know, how much we care about the truth cashes out in the lives that we lead. If it's a good life or a bad life. I mean, this is basically what Socrates told us. The unexamined life is not worth living. I believe that. I truly believe that. What an insulting thing to say to all the Athenian jury who don't examine their lives. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and he sealed his yeah. fate, didn't he? Yes. It sounds like a great inspirational quote, but what he's really saying in that situation is your unexamined life isn't worth yeah. living to his audience. Yeah. So, yeah. so why do you think they killed him? Beats me. <laughs> he's just, yeah, told them you, you know, you, your entire lives are based on unexamined premises and I'd rather die than live the way you're living. What a thing to say, right? I'd rather die. And he, and he really meant it, you know, because at that point as in the apology, um, when he presents it, he's already been voted guilty by his 501 um, jurists. And now they're supposed to be negotiating the penalty. And you know, they, you know, the, 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 his accusers ask for death, so he's supposed to counter with a no, I'll pay a fine, I'll pay a stiff fine, and, um, or I'll go into exile or something. And no, he's not gonna barter with them. And he's, you know, he said, look, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm trying to save you guys from the worst state possible, sleepwalking through your life. You know, I'm, I'm trying to render you woke. And, um, and uh, you know, so, you know, what do, what do I think a, a fitting punishment would be? Free meals. <laughs> Free meals for life. Honor me like and a champion. You treat me like a, an Olympic champion, because that's what I am. Because I'm really trying to do you some good, instead of just entertaining you. So, um, you know, and that's when he says, you know, I'm not going to play your game. And what I'm going to say is, um, you know, life at any price is just not worth it to me. I lived by my principles. I will die by my principles. Um, it's, it's an amazing moment. It really is. I think that's my favorite part of the apology, the uh, bargaining over the sentencing. But let's go, let's go back a little bit then, because that's not the only place he's not playing their game. 
he's not playing their game from the word go. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you think he was brought to trial um, at all, why they could not tolerate his philosophical practice. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the Athenians so prided themselves on their freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And, um, and he was quite the attraction, you know, he was such, you know, he was an exceptional man and they uh, revered exceptional men, right? And it was, um, so it's, it's interesting that Athens uh, would turn on him like this. I do think that the timing, you know, and this is my own reading of it, I think the timing of the trial is very pertinent because they had lost the Peloponnesian War, and um, by those, you know, not very, you know, by the Spartans who couldn't even put a good sentence together, and they so prided. Well, they could put they could put a short sentence together. This a short sentence, right? Right, a Spartan sentence, a laconic sentence. So, um, yeah. So, so they had taken a big fall. It had been what? How long? Thirty-one years. The Peloponnesian Mm -hmm. War, and. There had been the plague early on, and you know their empire it was destroyed. It, it, they, the city, um, as a whole, had been guilty of hubris. Really, it was a collective hubris, and um, and they were not, I don't think, in a mood. And you know, and then there was the oligarchy, and they had just gotten rid of the oligarchy, and the de- uh, democracy would, had been reinstated. And one of the first things they did. Um, and three nine, you know, was three nine nine BCE was to put Socrates on trial. I don't think that this is at all um, an accident. I think that uh, you can tolerate when you're riding high. You can tolerate criticisms of your way of life when you're trying to resurrect yourself of importance, um, which they were doing collectively at that point. Um, then uh, this man who's been deriding them their whole lives uh, and saying, you really must examine your lives. You think you're so great, but you're not, was not to be tolerated. So you think um, it was just that they were extra cranky from the traumatic experience of the (laughs) Peloponnesian War that they could no longer laugh off what they laughed off 20 years before? You know, I think it was, it's a little deeper than that just because it was, Greek society in general, I believe, was was a society that took, um, you know, what did they think made life worth living? It's sort of a theme, extraordinary. Um, I call it the ethos of the extraordinary, that they, uh, you wanted to live a life that was worthy of being sung by the poets. Uh, you know, Cleos is, is, is uh, fame and glory. And, um, and, it's not so very unlike our culture, right? Um, they were pre-monotheistic, we're post-monotheistic. Um, and it's interesting to me when I look at the culture to see the parallels, you know, now that it's no longer trying to gain, you know, a good life in terms of, you know, what God had supposedly tells us, to, you know, um, and uh, gaining God's approval. It's uh, gaining one another's attention, you know, and your fame or money or this sort of thing. This is very, this is very similar, I think, to the to the culture of of the ancient Greeks. Only there, you had to 
do something, you know, truly big so that you would be spoken about. Um, and then, and, and uh, you know, when in that wonderful moment in, in the Iliad where um, Achilles, who's revered as the greatest of the Greek heroes in, in, in uh, classical um, Greece, um, he's given the choice between um, a long but unextraordinary life or a short but songworthy life, you know, to be known through the ages, he chooses the short one. And indeed, you know, the Iliad, the, the, the alternative name for the Iliad is the Song of Achilles, right? There right. he is being sung, right? So, uh, so to be vanquished in this way um, went, went to the heart of, of, of their view of, of, you know, what made life worth living. They couldn't all as individuals be extraordinary, but they were participating in an extraordinary culture. Um, and, uh, and that gave them the sense of, yes, this was a life worth living. And here was this guy saying, no, it's not. So let me, let me try to recap that. That's so interesting. Um, we'll put it, the idea is that there's this long religious uh, period of human history where we're turned inward and trying to gain the recognition of God. But before that in Greece, and now presumably on social media or something, um, we're trying to gain each other's recognition, fame, attention, but even maybe approval. People want to do something and be noted. And that is sort of our link to, I don't know, immortality, something longer, Cleos, fame, praise. And the ur hero of the Greek culture is Achilles, who chose fame over life. And everyone just goes wild for him because he did the thing. He embodied this value of, it matters that people speak about me, not that I get to be comfortable. Exactly. And so all of the Athenians, they believe this of themselves. And the reason, this is the, this is the turn that I found very interesting because it goes from this individual notion of distinguishing oneself, like Achilles does the hero, to this collective distinction. We are all participating in the project of Athens, which is glorious. We've had... Heracles, we've built an empire, we've stolen all this, you know, treasure from the Delian League, we've done all this building on the Acropolis, and they were riding high on that, and then when they're struck down by plague and war and Sparta and the 30, they're not feeling so great. And so this, that Socrates is still there saying, haha, I told you so, you're worthless, stung even even more. I, I... That's my theory. (laughs) Okay, yeah. If you had to put yourself in the mind of someone, why, what is the best case you can come up with against Socrates? Yeah. Well, um, somebody, you could say, you know, that somebody who is willing to doubt everything and always forcing people to... uh, to put the social norms, the social conventions up for rational debate, uh, that our powers of reason are feeble, you know? And and so maybe we're not going to be able to do it. Uh, And this causes a kind of skepticism and could lead to anarchy. 
I think that's the best thing that I, you know, I would concentrate on on our feeble reasoning powers. I think um, 2000, some 2000 and some odd years after this, we still have a great deal of evidence of how feeble. <laughs> okay, so. We think. <laughs> the best reason to kill a philosopher is because everyone's else's powers of reason are so feeble that you might get into skepticism and not be able to find your way out. That's right. That's right. And then, and then, and give up what you ought not to give up, you know, and maybe just fall back on um, a postmodern, you know, uh, renunciation of there even being such a thing as truth. Um, and without truth, you know, the only thing that would remain is, is power, you know, my group dominating your group and this sort of, you know, this sort of picture. Um, right. Now, of course, so, Socrates never put that up to doubt, you know, nor Plato, right? That, you know, for them, there was such a thing as truth, and this truth certainly matters. Course, yeah. But if you're going to keep, you know, going after everything, well, why not go after truth itself? And then, you know, then there's really nothing then to rein us in. How dangerous. Um, in that yeah, case, I, I want to yeah. ask you then if there's, so we can make this argument from two sides. And what you, seem to be articulating there is something about the relationship between philosophy and politics. And a lot of people read the apology as being about philosophy and politics. Yeah. And the usual argument is that, well, politics is such a bastard, they're always going to come after philosophers because they get angry and they can't understand what Socrates is really up to. But what you've just said to me is a little bit more like philosophy is actually quite dangerous and politics better be careful or you're going to wind up in this postmodern nihilistic uh, free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, no, no, I wonder. I wonder what you yeah. what you think about how politics and philosophy can get along, if they can get along, or or what about Socrates' solution of keeping them a little bit separate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, I was making that case because you said. Of course, I put you in a position yeah, to keep. Yes, right. um, <laughs> uh, Rebecca Goldstein does not say kill philosophers. <laughs> right. Nor do I say that. Uh, you know we can question whether truth matters. I'm enough of a Platonist that, no, that is, uh, I, I don't think we can question that. Given that I do think that the truth matters, um, and given that I do also believe that our powers of reasoning are quite feeble, and that, you know, it's very, very hard to see past our motivated reasoning. You know, we're, we're all motivated reasoners. None of us are these perfect, um, pure, objective thinkers. Um, that, uh, you know, that philosophy is quite useful, especially if we call in as many people, diverse people as possible, right? This is certainly, Something that even Socrates, you know, espoused. Uh, you know, Mino, right? He, he has slave boy, you know, enter into this into his dialogues. I think that's important. Yeah, but um, the conclusion was not that the slave had a different viewpoint, but that his view he shared the same viewpoint that everyone would from eternity. That's right. That's right. But that, so that you know, since they were so committed to the Socrates and Plato, so committed to the view that reason, you know, if you really follow reason, you will end up with the same conclusions, right? So there's not that diversity of opinion. 
Um, but there is diversity, you know, in the way that we use diversity, you know, different people, you know, women, men, rich, poor, upper class, lower class. They can all find their way around a triangle. They can all find their way around. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, and that there's, you know, there's a way of abstracting from, um, you know, the culturally induced differences, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, you know, I actually believe that. Um, right. I, I, I believe that this is true. Um, and I believe, you know, that, that that's a political truth as well. You know, that, that, that is that everybody has to be, you know, that's why I think democracy is a very good thing, right? That um, it is, everybody has to have a part of this. Everybody has to be participating. Everybody has to feel the responsibilities for this government as a personal project. Um, because we all see so through a class darkly, you know, we all of us do. So bring in as many different colored glasses as possible. But why, uh, so why do you think if, if you're that much of a Platonist that that will get us any closer to the truth? Oh, well, th there's where my Platonism says, or maybe it's the Platonist, Platonism of the Mino. You know, it's, it's that, um, uh, if we ask the right questions, if we, you know, I sound like a kind of Pollyanna there, but you know, I mean, asking the right questions is important, but digging out the hidden premises, bringing them up to the surface, examining them uh, with people who find them objectionable um, and, and needing to defend them, that this is, this is a political, uh, a political, um, behavior, um, and that it's it, it's a way of trying to get around uh, the limitations of uh, of our thinking, and we we so made some progress. Why does why does Socrates and I think Plato disagree with you so strongly here? So I just want to refer to yeah. Socrates's argument in the Apology, where he says, "If you want to stay alive and you care about justice or the truth at all, you better stay away from politics because they will yeah. kill you." Yeah. Why will why does he think that they'll kill anyone any person of integrity? And why why don't you think that? Well, you know, I'd like to think that um our I would like to think that our modern democratic institutions uh had been designed by people who knew Plato's and Socrates' um, arguments against democracy and why it was so short-lived, short really. I mean, it was a long time being developed and then it came crashing down quite soon, you know, afterwards. And so, um, you know, I would like to think, are you here, are you in the US or are you Canadian? I'm in Canada. So yeah. nearly there, just looking from, uh, from nearby worriedly. Yeah, yeah, we're all extremely worried, yes. Um, one would have liked to have thought, until it was put to the test recently, uh, that these institutions um, have been designed so that we could uh, we could prevent what uh, Plato warned us of in the Republic, that the next step in the degradation of, of governments after democracy is tyranny. Well, I thought that your constitution was designed precisely to avoid the degradation into democracy, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, you have in, yes. in the Federalists, they say, even if every Athenian had been a Socrates, 
every assembly still would have been a mob. Because yeah. he thought that um, this whole participatory, democratic, everyone can think for themselves yeah. attitude was precisely the problem, precisely why Socrates was killed. Yeah. So, I agree with you entirely. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. That's what the Electoral College was all about. That's what the ownership of land and, you know, you know, only landowners, land, male, white landowners could, could, but the Electoral College absolutely um, was, was designed against um, full participatory, direct democracy. Right. Even the um, idea of representation, it's supposed to be, you know, our wisest, our best leading exactly, us. Exactly, um, exactly. So, yes. Um, never, and Nevertheless, it, and, and it is cracking. It is cracking very, very badly. Even on the more abstract issue of then, where do we put philosophy? Because, you know, we started with, well, what's the relationship between philosophy and politics? And you said, yeah. well, everyone, we have to all take part, take responsibility for politics and also kind of do philosophy on it. And so I was pushing back because I'm thinking of Socrates' argument about how philosophers can, philosophy cannot survive politics. And... Mm -hmm. Then we got to this other separation where maybe the founders thought that you can't have democratic politics because democratic politics will kill philosophy, but maybe if you have these uh, elected wise men in Congress, they might be able to do the philosophy for everyone. Yeah. It might be seen yeah. like more of a platonic solution. Yeah. But even, even now, um, like, do you think even even leaders who you back and you think have integrity, can you think you can be, do you think you can be a political leader or active politically and be doing philosophy at the same and time? And be a philosopher. Hmm. I mean, you could be philosophical. Um, you could take it seriously, you know. Um, uh, politics is the art of, you know, very concrete, it's very real, you have to deal with people and, you know, it's different talents. Um, I just wanted to say one thing that I, that I would like to get in, you know, that um, I, think, I think our founders, you know, got it very, very wrong. They really were not understanding um, what the degradation from from democracy to tyranny and and it, it's really interesting when you go back and you look at the republic um it, it's it's the the um the oligarch uh the uh the democracy had evolved there was this long sort of you know spiral down you know from the best um government um to the worst tyranny and the step before democracy was a plutocracy, right? Where it's the rich who are in power and there is a tremendous disparity between the rich and the poor. Uh, so much so that Plato says, there are two cities, the city of the rich and the city of the poor. It's not one city that has, has their interests in common. These are two cities with their interests right. hostile and opposition to each other. And it's from that, situation. It's from a ruined democracy that has already been ruined because it evolved out of a plutocracy. It's from that democracy that then, you know, you, you have a, a tyrant arising who's going to speak mm -hmm. to the poor and say, yeah, 
It's going to feed on their resentment, on their justified resentment. So you um, seem to be saying that you think that the U.S. is somewhere between tyranny and democracy right now? Yeah, I think, and I think, in fact, that the, the democracy that we have had, um, you know, where the rich are, are so much in power, um, and, and, and kind of call the shots in politics, right? You, you know, it's long campaigns and take so much money and, you know, people like the Koch brothers and all of these, you know, where they can buy people um, for, their, for their own self-interested um, greedy um, ends. This is exactly the kind of so-called democracy uh, from which a tyrant can arise. And, and it's really right there in the pages of the Republic. So I think it's, it's that, you know, that has really, I mean, for us, it's been slavery, but it's also been incredible uh, inequality um, in classes, um, in, in wealth, in power. Right. That is so interesting. And so maybe with that, we can bring the chat around to the other current event that I wanted to talk to you about. And I think this might be an interesting link to all those questions about Socrates' persecution. Yesterday, or the day before, 150 writers and other intellectual types, academics, published an open letter on justice and open debate in Harper's Magazine. And these signatories said that they liked protest and inclusion, they don't like Trump, but that they wanted to speak out against the, I quote, intolerant climate that has set in on all sides, end quote. So this letter goes out, and immediately Twitter gets mad. There are people jumping in to complain about the letter, the tone, the signatories, basically everything about it. And you, Rebecca, were one of the signatories. So I would love to hear your take on what's in the letter, why you signed it, and the reaction to the whole thing. Well, it was, um, let me see, it was about... Three weeks ago, I think, I got this letter from a, a, someone I know quite well, Mark Willa, uh, a political scientist, and, um, and he sent me the letter and asked if I would sign it. And, um, and I'm going to tell you something, and Mark actually could back this up. I first refused. Um, not that I really disagreed with it. I said it's an excellent letter. You know, it's a little mealy mouth and you know it's a little vague and you know all that but um but this is the wrong time it's going to be seen as a reaction against the protests against racial injustice police brutality um and yeah i'm upset by you know people being muzzled i've never been muzzled <laughs> um but i am upset by it and uh you know that's uh, this is not ideal uh, especially for people who have you know, who are young and starting out and are afraid to speak their minds, it's not good. But we have so much worse going on right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy that people are out on the streets protesting this, you know, this, this, this obscenity uh, of racial injustice that's been there from the very beginning. And then actually a few things happened, a few more incidents of people being attacked, um, you know, because people didn't like, and they were not saying terrible things. They were not saying, um, you know, they're very far from 
anything white supremacy. No, these were scholars who were not quite towing the line. And um, can you and give us an diamond. example or? Well, so I don't like. I'm not trying to name names. I'm just curious <laughs> what we're talking about. Yeah, you know something. So, for example, um, one of our most horrible, in my opinion, <laughs> senators, a senator from Arkansas, um, Tom Cotton. Um, he uh, wrote a horrible um, op-ed in the New York Times Magazine, and um, it was ridiculously written. And it was, uh, you know, and it was, of course, very anti the protests going on. Um, and the fact that the, you know, that this had been allowed, now he's a senator, this is a man with power. You know, he's voting in the Senate. So yeah, let's hear from him. Let's have other people publish things showing what an asinine and uh, misleading and hypocritical and riddled with fallacies article that was. That's the way to do it, right? No, what happened was, the editor of the Times opinion page was fired. Um, and I thought, I thought that was a, a, a bad thing. Some, somebody in a think tank, a liberal think tank, um, uh, tweeted maybe or wrote a paper where he cited the work of a social scientist who happens to be an African-American um, showing that sometimes um, protests, if they get violent, can be linked with, you know, the, the you know, repression, you know, right. the Nixon riots. And so, you know, and for citing this uh, man's research, statistical right. research, he was fired. So these things happened in the meantime. Um, and, um, and then I decided um, this is this is this is not good, and you know, and I decided to sign it. Um, and I, I didn't think, you know, I, I was worried about that. I didn't ask who the co-signers were. Mm -hmm. I knew it who, uh, Mark Willa, and Steven Pinker because I'm married to him, and so he had gotten the same letter. Um, but. Um, you know, I, I didn't think it was, I wanted to know who it was. I could tell from the letter because it starts by, you know, saying what to me or the obvious political, you know, politically right. just my things about Trump is dangerous and the protests are good and all that. Um, I didn't think it was, you know, going to be written by any, you know, um, uh, reckless alt-right people or something like that. And I know that that Mark Lilla is not such a person. And when I, when I did see it printed yesterday, I saw that, yeah, they had made a real effort for diversity. I mean, there were left-wingers, Noam Chomsky and Howard Atwood, you know, there were right-wingers, uh, although nobody terribly on the right. Um, there were young, old, um, black, white, you know, it was, right. they, they'd done a good job. Um, but there has been some uh, tremendous uh, venom <laughs> that came gushing forth. I've gotten a lot of letters asking, and even you know, some journalists asking to uh, to pen this. Already um, was this? Yeah. When, when did the letter go out? Was it yesterday or the day before? It was, it was printed. What's today? Wednesday. I think it was yeah. printed yesterday. Yeah, 
journalists from Norway. I mean, it's, it's so interesting how everybody pays so much attention to what happens in the U.S., you know. But, <clears throat> but yeah, so, you know, and, and actually at least one quite good friend who just, you know, who disagreed with it respectfully. He thought it was a mistake for the reasons that I had been so reluctant to sign it at first. This is not the time. I understand. Right. I understand that. Um, but people, here's one of the myths. I, I understand that, and you know, it's yes, it, it gave me great pause. Um, here's one of the misreadings of it that I'm really surprised at, which is people understood this. It, it's very prominent people. I'm, probably, I'm the least prominent person on it for sure. Um, you know, it's you know, Noam Chomsky, Margaret Atwood, um, um, Whitten Marsalis. The people who signed it we're not complaining about themselves. They were trying, and that was one of the misreadings, like wah, wah, boo-hoo, you famous people, you know, you got such a big platform, you know, so somebody disagrees with you on Twitter and you're, you're you know, weeping these crocodile tears. Um, that never would even cross, you know, I think everybody's mind. A few of those people had been severely censored. Oh, so um, Rowling is on there. And right. She's, yeah, um, but I'm transphobe JK Rowling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, um, but you know, for the most part, no, it was no, it's not oneself that and that really surprised me, you know, and I. So what do you um, think accounts for it? Why so much venom? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think things have gotten very mean. They've gotten really mean and you always look for, especially if, you know, you're, it's not your allies, maybe you're somebody who really thinks, you know, everybody who disagrees with this, whatever it is that you believe has got to be censored. And, um, and you, you know, so you look for like such a mean interpretation of motives. Um, and you, you know, you, people, we do this. I mean, something has gotten very mean and, and that was what the letter was saying, that we've got to be able to speak to one another. We have to be able to think past. Here's one of the things that's really interesting also. You know, you know, truth. I think, yeah, I think the truth matters. And I think, you know, to deny that it matters is, is just nonsensical because that very assertion that it doesn't matter. Well, is that true? I mean, it's just, you know, to assert something is to say that it's true. It's a prosaic, truth is prosaic. We don't need any fancy theories of truth, right? That's where we can go wrong. It's just, you know, snow is white, if and only if snow is white, right? And that proposition is true, if in fact, there's a fact backing it up. So language is not used like that anymore. And this is politics. Language is often, I mean, there are many things we do with language. There was many language games we play, right? And sometimes we use language to affirm our allegiance to a certain group, you know, I pledge allegiance, right? Um, and there are certain propositions which are either true or false, like climate change is real and man-made, right? It, it's either true or false. There's a lot of empirical evidence for its being true. But that proposition is no longer even, um, for in some, certain groups, is never you know, when people deny it, it's not to say, oh, I've got the evidence against it. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a climate expert and I, I can defeat it. It's to say, um, 
I belong to this group, and this is right. one of the things, this is how. And sometimes the more outrageous the things, the more empirically falsified the things that you are asserting to be true, the more you're showing your allegiance, what a good follower you are. You see this in religion all the time, right? You see this in Kant, I think. I mean, the dumber really? the thing you do to be moral, the more it proves that you're a moral person. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, the extre- you know really extreme things um, shows, you know, what you are, so, you know, if I call black, white, I, you know, cause my group tells me to, oh, you know, you know, I'm loyal. My, right. my, my compatriots can, can trust me. But okay. Um, so let's, let's come away from the, uh, climate denial examples are, are things that are seem to be obviously empirically one way or the other, but there are a lot of other more ambiguous signals as to your political allegiance things that will take on a different meaning. So in one sense, I would say that I'm pro-life because I don't like death, but politically, right, as a topic on abortion, I'm certainly not. So I think that there might be, you know, there's many functions that language is doing, and one of them, at least, or one set of them, seems to be really political. Yeah. And another one might not be. There might be a discussion to be had about the severity and reality of climate change, but if you're not on the party line in public, you sound like a shill for Exxon who's denying climate change. Yes, no, that's certainly true. I mean, the thing is that I think, you know, for propositions which are either true or false, um, to become, to take on this role, this political role, um, this is dangerous. I mean, it happens in the you know, why didn't it happen on the left? And it's not, it's a dangerous, uh, it is, you know, as if, you know, they just, the truth doesn't even matter. Well, look, the truth is our friend. You know, if we believe false things, reality's gonna, reality's gonna kick us in the ass sooner or later. It's, you know, it's a good thing to believe true things. Right, well, I'm, what I'm saying is, it's just treating something as a question of truth might be a different activity than treating something politically. So, I, right, I agree. Yes, life right. is good. Yes, yeah. maybe that we can we can argue whether we're pro-life, but once it's a discussion about political rights and abortion, then this is not up for discussion anymore. Right, no. we're doing a different I, kind of thing. We're committing a political exactly. act. Exactly. Now, still there too. You know, there. I think you know. I since I believe there is such a thing as moral truth. Um, that, you know, we, we could argue this, we could, I actually, um, you know, I, I have to tell you that I, I had to be convinced about abortion. Um, I did, I, I couldn't see it for a very long time. And I'm, you know, and I kept asking people who, who had a different position than myself for their arguments. I got convinced, you know, changed my mind. Um, it's a good thing. (laughs) when that happens right Right. but uh, i mean you can also understand why people might want to shut down the debate after they've established yes position i can understand that but when you actually meet somebody who holds a different position um i don't think you should shut down the debate i don't think i think we should be very patient i think it depends Um, well, so I'm thinking of Socrates, okay? So why does he want to stay the heck out of politics and only lead a private life in the agora? Yeah. I think it's because he doesn't want, he wants to do philosophy. And you say you can be political and be philosophical because you can take things seriously. 
but I think the key to philosophy is not taking a lot of things seriously. For instance, nearly all of the things that Socrates suggests in the Republic, like women exercising naked with men in the gymnasium, or the philosopher kings, or the destruction of the family, any of those things. Right. He's like, let's not take those seriously. Let's forget all these prejudices and these moral commitments that we have so we can get up in our thoughts and get wild with it. Yeah, but you know what? If, um, if uh, whether some people are going to live good lives and others not good lives uh, depends partly on the political decisions that we make. Um, I'm full, I'm full soft, I'm committed as a philosopher to everybody's life being, uh, you know, the, the maximally flourishing that it can possibly be. Um, that is to me something that I would philosophically defend. Um, and that means that to some extent, you know, since uh, how good a life one lives depends an awful lot on uh, politics. Um, I mean, that we, we kind of have an ethical obligation. Does that make sense to you? I, I know, look, this makes great sense to me. This makes uh, great political and moral sense to me, but I don't know if that's a philosophical commitment. Right? Well, it's a so philosophical when I, when I picture philosophy, yeah. it's yeah. Socrates just saying the most wild off the wall ideas, let's talk about it. And to me, what you're talking about, the kind of racial injustice in the United States and elsewhere, yeah. this is philosophically very low hanging fruit. There's not a, a whole confusing set of mm -hmm. dots we have to connect to see that it's wrong. And, and so mm -hmm. this is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to drive at is that sometimes what is philosophy in the seminar room or in a private conversation can feel like bad politics in another context, for example, on Twitter or, or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what's good politics is actually not always very interesting philosophy because it should, it's glaringly obvious. Yeah, well, I suppose that that is true. I'd be very happy to be talked out of being philosophically committed and I waste <laughs> an awful lot of time in it. I'm not, and, and you're right. It's not intellectually interesting. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, what's not using one's finely trained philosophical yeah. mind in this thing. You know, I understand this. But, um, but it still seems an obligation. Yes. Maybe not as a, a philosophical obligation, but an, but an obligation, right? I mean, an obligation of anybody. Anybody? So here, so here about, the, how about this? Is it an obligation on Socrates? Because it did look like he was causing trouble. He was saying a lot of pro-oligarchic talking points. Yeah. A yeah. lot of his students, you know, did really bad things. So maybe was it his obligation to, in the agora where everyone could hear him, tone it down a little bit? Or to go on record saying he supports the new democracy and no more coups, guys? Mm. Um. Yeah, he wanted to keep his complete independence from both sides. He, he didn't collude with the oligarchy, but nor did he support uh, the democracy. No, it's true. Um, well, I think, and I actually think he was wrong in that, right? Um, so, yes, I think he should have gone on record, stood up in the, in the PNIC, sort of the Agora, and, and said that uh, we've got to support the, the new democracy, yeah. That's quite, that's quite interesting. So 
do you, as a public philosopher yourself, do you think that is, there's a difference, there's a moral commitment that you are obliged to as a public philosopher that you wouldn't necessarily be obliged to as a private philosopher? I somehow always felt um, that to live the life of, um, of a philosopher, of an intellectual, of, of a writer, such a privilege um, that, that there was a special obligation uh, to, to participate in civic uh, society. Um, it's a kind of penance. I mean, to me, I, you know, I don't like it, but it's a kind of, oh, you're going to pay me to think? What it, you know, I, I should be, I don't know, mopping floors or something, right. you know, doing something useful. Um, so I owe it. I sort of specially owe it. And that perhaps, now this is going to sound, you know, but perhaps since, you know, one spends one's life separating, making distinctions, this concept, that concept, what follows, right? Thinking of counterexamples, following consequences, that maybe that can be applied, as you say, it's kind of in a low level way. Uh, to some political questions, you know, and, and you know, and it, it, it often happens. If you disagree with Socrates for his quietism and passivity, quietism, yeah. um, what are the things you most disagree with Plato about? Huh. Um, gosh. Um, I don't think that the intellectual life necessarily makes you a better person. Um, he was, you know, he was always trying to, you know, how, how, I think that might be my greatest, you know, disagreement with him. You know, 20 years of math, people are still a jerk. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. You know, and, you know, some of the most pompous, insufferable people I know are brilliant, uh, you know, uh, you know, physicists, mathematicians, and yeah, it doesn't purify the soul in which, in a way which he so, you know, foolishly uh, believed. Um, you know, he didn't ha have to, he founded the academy, he did not have to sit through academic department meetings and listen to <laughs> Right, <laughs> so I like it. It was, you know, it's the op, you know, it's it was fine. It was the beginning, you know. Who knew? It was a nice hypothesis. It has been so thoroughly falsified. There is there was a recent um, empirical article by some psychologists who had uh, done a study and sent out letters, and I can't remember what the exact study was, but they were studying if ethics professors were any more ethical mm -hmm. than anyone else, and it there's no evidence of that. No. Yeah. No, I, it's, I know I read that. <laughs> I, I used to teach ethics and tell my students specifically, this won't make you a better person, but yeah. bad person or good person, you'll be better at justifying what you're going to do. What you said to your students is exactly right. You know, you will be able to justify yourself, you know, whether virtuously or viciously better uh, if you study philosophy. You know, Plato, I think he thinks, you know, that it, it can all be done by intellectual work. You know, no, it, it can't. That's not what's going, that's not what's going to make us better people. No, it's not what's going to open our eyes. Now that we've 
talked a little bit about Plato and Socrates leaning too far on the philosophical side and thereby neglecting their political duties or missing the political point, I want to bring it back to that Harper's letter and ask whether you think that having an open and free discussion is always a good idea, or if sometimes it makes sense to constrain speech. Yeah. You know, as we had already said, we do many things with speech, many games that we play. Um, and, you know, uh, there is speech which is not said. I think that anything, you know, when speech is being used to make an assertion, where you're saying this is true, I think, yeah, let people say it and if it, and let people, you know, falsify the hell out of it, right? You know, just. But if speech is being used as a weapon, you know, to belittle, to diminish, to shut people up, then it's not, it's not uh, an assertion of truth that we can debate. And I think it should be limited. I don't think that, you know, mm -hmm. that, that speech should, you know, there are, should be used in that way. Do you think um, that separation can be sustained? No, yeah, I, I think that that is, in, you mean in the, in the fury of it all? Well, the, no, I just mean there, there are a lot of factual truths that you could say, and they will have a predictable political effect and will be used in different ways. They might be inflammatory. You know, if you pick every egregious crime committed by one minority group and start just saying that it's factually true, it did happen. Yeah. And yeah. that might produce really bad results that, you know. Yes, you... Absolutely. And then, you know, and of course you come back with, um, you know, the statistics of, you know, the other groups and what they did and what they compared. But, but this is an empirical question whether people come yeah. back and refute it. That's it's not true. philosophically certain. Yeah. And here's something, actually, look, there are certain things I think we shouldn't go there. Like there are certain questions that scientists could try to figure out, right? And some of them do. And the results are not going to help anybody. They, they Maybe they're true. So maybe women are dumber than men, right? Not statistically, right? Um, or, you know, and, 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 and we know how that's going to be used, right? You know, right. maybe women can't do math as well as men can do math or something like that. Um, what good is it going to, you know, like, just don't go there. That's not something to explore. That that's my view, right? Because what good is it? It's not going to dissuade the women who love math and want to do math, right? Well, I think I think the part of the argument is precisely that it will. It, it will do it exactly. It will do it. I mean, and all it does, and even the women who don't want to do math just end up feeling bad about anything that they do want to do, or you know, right. put, putting their two cents into any conversation. You know, when a man tells them to shut up, they're going to shut up. And that's not good for anybody, right? That's not, so, you know, there are certain, and so there are certain, you know, disparities between people that is not going to do anybody any good to know. And even, you know, even if it were true, you wouldn't be able to draw any moral conclusion from it, but you can predict that people will, right? If you said on average, women are, have this fewer IQ points, that tells you nothing about any individual or where they should stand or yeah. the moral question at all. Will misuse it because people 
because they're too dumb to understand statistics and how you apply it and you can't apply it to judging the individual, right? Which is why I think the question of, you know, what's philosophy, when are we using something as a statement of what is and when are we using something to hurt yeah. or politically, I think it's a much more vexed question. It is a vexed question. Than, and and I, I bring this up as an example yeah. to support you and what you're saying. I, I, I agree with you in this. All right. Well, thank you very much for, for talking to me. That was a lot of fun. Great fun. And if we could just prolong the fun for a couple more minutes, usually at the end of episodes of Good in Theory, I like to leave with a short, fun argument or piece of research that didn't really fit into the main section of the episode. And since you are so well-versed in the characters in the platonic world, I was hoping you'd be able to tell us a little bit about one of the spiciest of those characters who got Socrates into a lot of trouble, Alcibiades. Oh, Alcibiades, what a guy. <laughs> he was beautiful, very, very smart, um, incredibly seductive to anybody who was alive at that time. I mean, men, women, Athenians, Spartans, everybody. He was, uh, he was uh, uh, quite full of himself and um, an incredibly charismatic. Um, he fe he's featured at the end of Plato's dialogue, the symposium. Um, just, you know, they're all having a serious speech without any drinking um, and making speeches about love. And then Alcibiades comes crashing in, wearing a wreath of flowers and totally drunk, and it goes to all hell. Well, Alcibiades betrayed Athens. Um, he, uh, he, he talked Athen uh, the Athenians into a completely calamitous invasion of Sicily. It went very, very bad. They lost a lot of men, a lot of ships. <laughs> it, was a, it was a disaster. Um, and then, and he was being called back to Athens to be punished, he realized that. So he, he um, betrayed Athens and went to Sparta, right? And then he was a, a leader there. Um, and then he, then he went back to Athens and betrayed them again. And then, and then he went to Persia, the worst enemy of the ancient Greeks. And he was assassinated there by where, you know, there's could have been anyone at that point. Could have been anyone <laughs> in the whole civilized world. 